afternoon everybody it is 1202 lunchtime in leander texas broadcasting live with uh, keith axline here and i will introduce you here in a second um this is eureka street crypto this is my daily crypto video blog aka brain dump and i talk about all things crypto and things i'm discovering do not take anything for fact or financial advice this is just my opinion man and uh, and sometimes it's not even my opinion sometimes i'm just discovering stuff and being like whoa all right um here's what i immediately think about that uh, regardless of facts so, <laughs> so anyway <laughs> that's what i do and i usually do it in the morning but um Sometimes uh, I like to have guests on, and uh, some, I've met some really interesting people through my journey in this crypto space. One of those people here is Keith Axline. Uh, we met in Denver at the Dow Denver conference, and he's also uh, a part of Dow Planet with me. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll journo uh, Dow too. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and he has his own project as well called Republic.io, which we're going to be talking about today. And it, it uh, really sparked a lot of questions and curiosity and a lot of stuff I'm really interested in in the way that Web3 and data are working together. Uh, so I was like, man, I got to have you on. So luckily enough, he was kind enough to come on this little old show and kind of explain to me and to you guys exactly what's going on here. So Keith, Say hello to the world, and uh, let's hear a little bit about uh, yourself and how you came, uh, you know, as much as you want to dox about yourself and how you came into this space. Yeah, no problem, Uh, and really honored to be here. It's uh, my kind of first outing under the Republic banner, so I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so I'm kind of all over the place as far as my interests, which I think is why we get along or got along while we were in East Denver. Um, yeah, I had this decades long career in media at Wired Magazine and Medium uh, towards the end there. And then um, it's always kind of a hobbyist developer um, and then moved to Portland, Oregon, where there are no real media jobs. And so decided to go full time uh, development, worked at a consultancy for a while where I got a lot of it's kind of like boot camp since I'd never really been on like a, a project. I've just always been freelancing and stuff. And then through that consultancy, I kind of uh, started to grasp the importance of like data collection and data management through some some projects like with NOAA and other like government organizations. And it kind of just spiraled into this uh you know platform that everyone could use. And then it became clear to me that like you know, your average person is sitting on a bunch of data that given like a purely efficient market would be like super valuable. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of been like a, my own personal journey of discovery and Republic is kind of like the product at the, well, it's not the end I'm sure, but like the product right now, uh, that I think, uh, the world needs as far as 
data collection and um, empowering users. Okay, so a hobbyist developer. Um, that I mean, development to me. How do you how do you become a hobbyist developer? I don't I don't understand that because it seems to me like what do you just learn some programming languages and then you just say I'm going to just start learning code and then you see what happens from there. I mean, what does that look like? Well, I think it has to be get into all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to be a means to an end, uh, and for whatever reason that. Like I was super into video games and okay. so it really started there like in middle school, high school um, with like HyperCard and all these like early programming things, just trying to build like a Street Fighter game basically, <laughs> <laughs> like, which HyperCard is like ridiculously hard to do that. Uh, and especially when you don't know what you're doing. And then, okay. you know, and then I would like join these Diablo guilds. I don't know if you know that that video game now we were coding in basic and making choose your own adventure games when i was in middle school and in, in computer technology class uh, right. i don't know how far yeah. back you go but you know <laughs> no yeah I, I think you're a few years ahead of me but uh yeah the diablo was like taking up all my time i was in these guilds and i wanted to set up like a, a way for people to exchange items it's basically just a dungeon grind and you like find cool stuff and then you could sell it to other people. So I created like a little bulletin board. It was just like in Microsoft Word when they had like create a web page, <laughs> whatever, you know? And I was like, yeah, yeah. What was that called? Microsoft front page or something? Yeah, I don't, I don't even remember. <laughs> it took a lot of forms, nothing took off. But uh, so yeah, it just kind of spiraled from there and then trying to like, uh, play multiplayer doom with people i'd I'd literally have my friends like carry their computers over to my house and then like ethernet you know network them all and so yeah it was always like sitting there trying to figure something out just so we could play the game but that yeah like eventually led to a, a an interest to solving those problems like at the software level so so this is in california right and i actually grew up in uh eugene oregon Eugene, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. That, that seems to me like such a, you know, Silicon Valley kid thing to do, you know, <laughs> yeah. like get together, cypherpunk era, get together, network your computers. And, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, you know, we just, yeah, there weren't many kids um, where I grew up that would be totally into something like that. So that's really cool that you got to be around stuff like that. Well, I mean, I was, as far as I know, the only one really. <laughs> yeah. I've met people from Eugene since then, but uh, yeah, you no, know, I moved down to Santa Cruz for college, and then San Francisco for, um, you know, most of my twenties and early thirties career. So yeah, definitely found more people like that in in California, and that was pretty cool. Okay, and then you got into music. I, I know you were telling me you you were, mm-hmm. you know you have music at the heart of you or at the core of you in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad uh, was a musician or is a musician. He's still playing bands, but when I was growing up, he was kind of gently pushing me to play guitar and I was almost just like, didn't want to because he was telling me to, but eventually like <laughs> we're doing it. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, dad, can you teach me how to play guitar? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then he was like, if you're smart, you'll learn how to play drums because there's going to be like tons of guitar players, but you'll always be able to be in a band if you can play drums. So yeah, yeah. Lessons too. And, and then like 
we were talking about before the the Tascam four track. He had one of those sitting around for his own stuff. Yeah, this thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. A little US one twenty two sound card. It's not really a four track, but uh, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he always had some way to record, and um, yeah, yeah. And so you know, since I could play drums and guitar, and uh, if you can't tell, I was a bit of a nerd and had a lot of <laughs> alone time. I uh, yeah. you know started recording and kind of figuring that stuff out and that was like a way for me to, you know, always be able to create music, even if, you know, I couldn't find people to play with. So, yeah. So in a way that's kind of like programming, you know, you're putting layer upon layer and just building up on each other. And yeah, (laughs) you can see a lot of musicians and programmers have a lot in common in that way. Um, Well, recording artists, I guess. Okay. So this led you to San Francisco and to where, you know, you started, um, basically hobbyist development and you started building up a platform, but you also have a writing career in there. And so you have writing music and programming in there and all yeah. this is kind of converging to where you are at, where you are now, um, with this Republic Dow. So, um, tell me a little bit about how you think all those things can kind of converge into the current project. Yeah, it's. I think that the through line only makes sense in retrospect. You know, I don't think I or anyone else would have guessed that this is where <laughs> that was all building to. But um, you know, I think I've always had this sense of uh, you know wanting to make the world better and make it more fair. And and uh, so part of that was like with with writing and news and editing. I was trying to like highlight you know, projects and companies that were, you know, in my view, making the world better or like interesting that people should know about. Okay. Um, and then it was actually on the way to my first South by Southwest. I joined a, uh, for, for wired as for a story, I joined a startup bus just like, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to embed myself on this startup bus. It's like startup these, bus. Yeah. It's like Ooh. a hack. It's a hackathon. Okay. It takes place like on a bus on the way to South by Southwest. And you basically have to build your like hackathon project on the bus and then present when you <laughs> and then So you're driving you're riding in a bus from California to Austin. Yeah. And you have that amount of time to create something? Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, really cool. I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, it's it's really cool. They they kind of and they're, I think they're still around. They're pretty successful. They branched out to other conferences and other, other things. Um, but on the, on that bus, I was just reporting about the team. I had to like convince a team to let me on cause I didn't really have any skills. You know, <laughs> I'm like mm-hmm. some guy and everyone's like, it was kind of like being the last kid picked for dodgeball <laughs> or something, but, uh, I made it onto a team. And then while I was, you know, just kind of writing blog posts about what it was like. I just thought like, oh man, I need to be doing that. Like you can just think of something that should be, should exist and then you can make it happen. Um, And I'm like, instead of writing about all these people, like I, you know, I need to be doing it. And so that's when, when I got back from that, that was still like probably halfway into my editorial career, but 
Okay. When I got back from that. That's when I kind of picked up the programming books again and started, you know, waking up at like four in the morning before work to do some programming and mm-hmm. um, just trying to hustle, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when did you decide that, um, cause your project is surrounding data and data mm-hmm. ownership. And so now we're getting to, you know, the formation of republic.io and Republic DAO. When did you decide that, um, people owning their data was starting to become kind of an issue? Um, I think it was when I was seeing those, you know, government organizations, like how much of their decision-making was based on Mm -hmm. this data that was provided just by like average people. So like one project was, um, Noah wants to know like the state of the oceans. So, uh, they can advise on like the quota of fish that can be caught or through a season or whatever. And so they're trying to, you know, incentivize fishermen to go out there and like report on what they catch and like what the conditions are and all this stuff. And that sort of dynamic started to bleed out in my mind. I'm like, well, everything's kind of like that, you know, like we're all out doing stuff and people want to know that. And then that's basically what Google's business is. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. what we're doing all the time and then uh, making money off of it. And I'm like, well, that's not very fair. Um, it seems like I should just get the money that's valuable. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay, well, there should be a marketplace where the people who want to know the things can pay the people who have the data and, um, that doesn't really exist. So I should, you know, start building that. And maybe these, you know, uh, government organizations and nonprofits could be like some of my first clients and like a little diversion before I kind of ended up going after like just the average person, what do they need to make this successful? You know? Yeah. When you were talking about the startup bus and coming out to report on South by Southwest and all that, that's kind of whenever web 2.0 and Facebook and Google were really, um, still looked upon very positively (laughs) by a large amount of the population and nobody really suspected any, you know, exploitation of data or them becoming, you know, billionaire trillionaires or whatever they are, you know, Mm -hmm. um, from your data and nobody probably ever even thought about, you know, that their data is worth something at that point. Um, yeah. so it's interesting that you picked up on that pretty early um, because really it was only 20, 2020 or 2019 mm-hmm. when I first even heard of the concept. Huh. Yeah, I guess this is the first time I'm thinking about this, but I'd, I've always kind of been, you know, not participating in those networks just from like the, the ickiness of it. It was just like, give us access to all your contacts and do all yeah. this stuff. It was kind of like a natural aversion to that and I've I remember even pitching somebody I met at the on the startup bus about just like can we just get like a box that lives in my house that like you know basically has Instagram on it but is only for <laughs> you know like my friends and family like the only the people that I want to see it like and I yeah. was like, that's stupid <laughs> <laughs> why would you do that you gotta like you gotta build the network you gotta build the flywheel you gotta get this you gotta get that yeah 
Like it takes infrastructure. That's what everybody's saying, you know, and the only people that have that infrastructure are Google and Facebook and, you know, all those large companies. And yeah. I think that's what was, what was holding out, holding back a lot of people. And the first time I honestly heard about any of this stuff was the implementation of Brave browser, you know, and then I started mm-hmm. understanding what Brave browser is about, you know, allowing people to choose um, whether or not they want to see ads and to be able to, you know, collect the Brave token from that ad. So mm-hmm. that was my first foray into this type of concept. Well, let me ask you, do you, do you have any sense of what advertising is going to be in the future? Well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on whether we go towards decentralization or centralization. And, uh, I think we're kind of at a crux right now. Um, and, we're at a crossroads depending on whether or not large centralized entities will win out in this, especially with the metaverse coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what I see is that um, I've, I've downloaded the app and the Republic app mm-hmm. and uh, you. yeah. And what I'm, I mean, it's, it's really user friendly and what I'm noticing is, and if I'm correct, if I'm incorrect, correct me, but it collects your information that, would normally be collected by I don't know who like Apple, um, like for, like geolocation, um, mm-hmm. any medical information you have on it. Um, uh, I don't know whatever else, um, but it collects that and it puts it in kind of a black box, mm-hmm. and then the only way out of that black box of that data being collected is if you get paid for it. Yeah. Um- the it's a little rudimentary right now so there aren't a lot of like options available but the idea is to you know collect everything that's possible that's of value which i think oh sorry about the sunlight here oh yeah it's a nice day um yeah to collect everything encrypt it and store it so that you know only you have access and then um, there's only a single license right now that you can kind of view in uh, high level terms, yeah. but then when you choose to share it, um, then it goes to a stream that's blocked by, you know, unless somebody pays for it, they can't, uh, decrypt the, the stream. I want to go to this app right here. Yeah. So I don't know if you can see that, but that's the app. And you know, so far mm-hmm. I haven't really done jack squat except sit on my butt. But uh, <laughs> uh, so it hasn't accrued any. But it allows you to accrue the data token right there. And I have the sensors turned on, but you can also turn on different ones right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, any type of data that your phone would collect, um, this app collects it. What is it kind of collect it before? Apple collects it? I mean, how doesn't this run in contradiction to Apple software and wouldn't Apple be kind of pissed about that? I mean, I don't understand. Um, well, there's, that's a good question. I might find out, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> theoretically, I'm not uh, doing anything with your data, right? I'm just like giving you the tools to manage it on your own. I actually think that Apple should be doing what I'm doing, but they won't yeah. because they don't, they're not set up that way. They're okay. Not, they're not going to like think about making their users money. Yeah. Um, but it's basically in parallel. So anything that my app can read, any other app can read too. 
Um, so it's, it is going to any other app that is listening for that stuff, but at least it's pulling off everything, uh, for your own copy. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's, it puts it into a, a trusted execution environment, like a black box. So you don't uh, even see the information and they don't see it. Right. Well, not yet. Uh, I'm, this is purely like raw data. So okay, like the XYZ coordinates of, you know, your sensors that are giving, it's kind of gibberish to anyone who doesn't know what they're looking for. And yeah, it needs some processing, uh, which I'm, you know, hoping to do and kind of build a community around yeah, uh, building those insights. But, uh, and right now, uh, it's really just an encrypted data store, uh-huh. but I am talking with, uh, genomes DAO about their infrastructure. I know, uh, flow science who you had on here is doing some. Yeah. The cannabis genomes DAO. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still an open question, like, uh, what the best balance is and whether queries need to run within an environment that's protected or whether, um, there's a case for sending out raw data under a certain license, under a certain license. Okay. Um, that's generally like easier and takes less control by the user. The user just has to put a license on it and be like, yeah. um, you know, obviously anyone can do whatever they want with it once they get it, which people always point out, but it's kind of like, well, that's where we're at right now. People are already like doing it. At least we're asserting some sort of ownership and licensing on top of it so that you do have sure. recourse if and when there are like actual enforcement um, mechanisms for people who abuse it. Yeah. So, so you're not really uh, letting, uh, I mean, okay. So people aren't really selling their data. They're selling the licensing for people to be able to use their data. So that it's kind of a nuance, but I think it's an important nuance right there. No, this is a gaping hole in pretty much every, uh, you know, data ownership platform that I've seen is nobody's really talking about licensing and why would you, cause it's a nightmare, but yeah, that's pretty much like what needs to be solved well, right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it goes back. I mean, even as a musician, you should you mm-hmm. probably have you know dealt with, you know, I mean, I, I used to run a, a pirate radio station out of my house and, you know, I would stream on um, uh, a platform called live 365 and uh, for internet radio, back when internet radio was a, you know, really a new concept, and I would have to pay SESAC, ASCAP, and BMI licensing royalties um, just to be able to stream music, even though I wasn't really playing any artists that you know, were under that umbrella. But in order to do so, you had to pay those people off. Um, so, I mean, but the whole idea of licensing is not a new thing and licensing data that you have and that you want to pre- put out there and have somebody else consume. So I mean, mm-hmm. could you see new types of licensing structures form around a similar type of concept? Yeah. Now that the, uh, the app is out there with like, you know, collecting data, we kind of have like the end to end flow down with like these limited types of, of data. I, I do want to focus on that. Um, hopefully by the end of the year, have something along those lines where yeah. it, it also needs to be abstracted away for the user. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, 
I wouldn't want to wish licensing on anybody. And <laughs> I'm going to get in. I wish there. it on the large companies. You know, the uh, large well, companies. Yeah. Yeah. But then they use it against you. It's like complexity always, yeah. you know, favors the, the big players. But, uh, but yeah, just having something like a, a UX that people understand and actually, uh, we could say like has consent because like, you know, signing a TOS or something, it's yeah. like not, not real consent, but like, you know, allowing users to really understand how their data can and is going to be used. And then, you know, having them opt in or not based on that. So I might, yeah. an example I give is like, I might be open to sharing all my location data for free for like a nonprofit, like citizen science or like health research study or, or something like that. So I could, you know, my license could, you know, uh, say that that's free, free use, whatever. Um, but then if a company like Google's going to use it to like do traffic analysis and create a product or something, then I can say, Oh, well, you have to pay me like X amount, you know, per hour or flat fee or whatever it is and give those, give those tools to the user and try and make it intuitive of like, well, how much is this worth? And like how much, basically how much would it upset you if somebody used it this way? And then yeah. <laughs> put a price on that. <laughs> like, you know, just I mean, that's a very price. valid point, you know, like what is our price, you know, for, for somebody mm -hmm. to, it's, it kind of goes into the philosophical realm. Yeah. You know? like, mm -hmm. What is your price for, for privacy? Yeah. What, yeah. at what point will you sacrifice your privacy for some income? Mm -hmm. And I think the, the ambiguity of that price is why we haven't been able to apply ownership structures and legal structures that we have for ownership to, to data up to this point, because uh, not only is it a weird, like non-static, uh, you know, fungible thing, and it's very ephemeral data, um, but then the value is, is even more so. And so until there's an efficient market where you can say like, oh, Google stole a hundred dollars from me because I could have gotten a hundred dollars over here, uh, with that data, but now it's useless because people are going to Google for the data. Like until we can make that claim, yeah, know, I think we're kind of, we're kind of okay. like these softball, um, like privacy, um, mm regulations yeah. and stuff and that can turn into a litigation nightmare and just go on and on and on and so yeah. what you're basically doing is you're quantifying the value of data mm -hmm. um in the same way that money quantified the concept of work i mean i i mm -hmm. kind of got on a philosophical tangent as i was reading some of your blog posts and your blog posts are amazing by the way so go to re-public.io and then go to the section the blog section I mean, you can tell Keith is a writer, you know, and uh, he's written for a lot of publications and he writes very well in a very easily digestible way. So I was able to blow through a lot of these articles. Um, but uh, some of the philosophical questions, and we were talking about quantification of data here and how work is the quantification of, uh, and money is the quantification of work. Well, mm -hmm. I was asking, what is money? Well, money equals work, and then work equals creation. Creation equals life. And then it started talking about, well, isn't all this, you know, just basically UBI? Well, you know, UBI is a monetary representation of life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so just by living, you're creating, and by creating, you're working. 
And so this whole idea of, you know, well, UBI just pays people to sit around is not necessarily true because you're collecting data and everybody has value. And mm-hmm. I've been, this has been kind of a common theme in a lot of my, my shows lately is trying to emphasize the fact that everybody's special, <laughs> like the most basic thing you learn since you're a kid, you're unique and you're special and you are valuable to somebody, you know, yeah. and it seems that the data that we're producing just by living our daily lives is now a one. We have a net, which is this phone to be able to collect that data. Mm-hmm. And then two, the ability in the platform to be able to quantify and sell that data that you're creating is now becoming possible when it was just previously being gobbled up. Yeah, exactly. And I would say, you know, more specifically than, than just life in general, it's, uh, you know, just the human value of that we kind of generate just by, you know, being an agent on this planet and having the, the human organism really need, just needs to know everything. Right. Yeah. And be, whatever you want to do, you have to know like the state of the world. And so I, f- uh-huh. I feel like we're headed towards just trying to get perfect, a perfect view of the world in real time. And humans are like the best sensors that you could imagine. And all you have to do is like give them like food and shelter and a phone and they'll like, yeah. they'll do the the rest of it, you know? Um, but obviously like, and this is why I've set up Republic as a, as a DAO, I was going with, I was trying to do a co-op or, you know, nonprofit or B Corp before I think a DAO is probably the best model, but uh, you know, you can't get that universal participation if somebody's getting rich off of it, right? Like yeah, there's always going to be a holdout crowd. And so to really to appeal to everybody, like there has to be something materially in it for them, you know, like, yeah. and, and it has to be appropriate and proportional to what they need and think are, they are deserved. And so you really need a marketplace where, where it's like, I don't know, maybe the people who say, Oh, I'll never share my data. Maybe if you offer them like a million dollars, two million dollars, like however much it is, if it's if it's worth that much and they're cool with it, then like that's a that's a fair transaction. But right now, you get a lot of people saying, "Oh, I'll never share my data because they haven't really been offered anything useful or good." Or worth, yeah, worth yeah. it. Like people value their data, like and privacy and the their personality, everything about you. Like that's hugely valuable to you. You don't don't want to just like that away. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no real moral structure to it either. You know, so you can't say somebody's good and somebody else is bad. I mean, they all produce data. So it's not trying like you're trying to create some moral framework. I mean, my Mm -hmm. question though is is you know, you're you're doing all this open source, wanting to create an Mm -hmm. open data marketplace. But what happens, and I know there's constantly this dance between you know, open source and closed source and centralization versus decentralization. What if this type of technology comes into the wrong hands and it gets into, you know, people that and entities that want to create a social credit system and come in and, you know, grade you or optimize your behavior to fit a larger norm rather than who you are as an individual? Mm-hmm. I think that's still at risk. I, I feel like we're kind of running that experiment in, in China right now and they are getting a lot of like efficiencies out of it as far as like organizing society and enforcing laws and getting everybody to kind of coordinate 
in a certain way, but I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that could exist anywhere else. I feel like the cat's already out of the bag with, uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin, Yeah, like already penetrating, you know, as far as I can tell, like every country on earth, um, like maybe shy of a few, but like China did try and shut down Bitcoin and it barely like, mm-hmm. but the, the price for like a day or something like yeah, yeah. as long as somebody is out there with a computer and access to like the Ethereum virtual machine mm-hmm. and like the archive, you can you can just boot up a new blockchain or, you know, I think, I think there, it's already to the point where it's more advantageous for um, centralized actors to get on board and try and find their place in the new the new order than it is to try and you know take on the almost impossible task of like trying to shut all this stuff down. <laughs> like it's yeah, hard. yeah, like uh, Zuckerberg did with Meta, you know, rebranding mm-hmm. Meta to try to to you know own the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, go ahead, name it Meta, but or <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's like ten other metaverses out there, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, did, wasn't that what happened with the original Windows? You know, the yeah, Gates basically trying to own uh, what a lot of people were already kind of doing back then in the '90s. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, just trying to fork Internet Explorer down everybody's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you can try, but it just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of Fetch AI? Uh, yeah, I have like this running list of things that like I need to look deeper into that keeps coming up. Yeah. Well, they're using autonomous economic agents is what they call them that are basically software installed in your phones with AI that uh, collect people's data in kind of the similar way along the mm-hmm. same vein of what, you're, of what uh, Republic is doing. Uh, but they're implementing AI to help people optimize their travel and all that stuff. Um, so if, say, for instance, you were driving around a, a city and you needed to park your car, it would optimize um, your route in order to, so you could go and it would check you know, the availability of parking places and A, parking garage A, and then divert you from going to B and get you going into A. And right. it would give you the fetch token for following the proper directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what if um, you really needed to go to parking lot B, though, you know, at first you just wouldn't get those tokens. But at what point does that become like the slippery slope of, oh, well, we're going to take away your tokens for not taking the optimal route? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. It is a little bit like, you know, anything else like fire or whatever, like it can, <laughs> yeah. it can go both ways. But I think ultimately, um, I think chaos kind of rewards uh something that is ultimately like beneficial to people um even though like who knows what the casualties will be i think we'll end up in a more utopian (laughs) vision eventually um and so yeah it's hard to say like what what uh part of the the continuum we're on with that i'm hoping to you know keep us yeah yeah uh you know, being just helping people achieve their goals rather than trying to manipulate them into an agenda, a pre-existing sure. agenda. Um, and I think, I mean, from what I see on the technical side, it's really about that adoption. And I think the power that we have over um, 
companies that would want to do that or organizations that would want to do that is just uh, if something is an unpleasant experience, people just aren't going to use it. Sure. And, and if you don't get enough people using it, then like you don't have that power. So I think there is a play of just generally we have it. We have a say in how these things go. And if it's becomes like, oh, wait, am I controlling this or is it controlling me? Then, you know, people are just going to stop using that as long as they have that choice, you know. But Yeah, the power of free will, you know, which kind of goes yeah. to a more theological question. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you guys are, as Republic, you guys are a DAO now. So and I have mm-hmm. a question here by Ahead in the chat. He says, what is a DAO? It's a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, would you like mm-hmm. to maybe help elaborate on what is a DAO and how Republic is acting as a DAO to create this platform? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, So we met in Denver and I traveled there uh, with my mom and she didn't know anything about crypto or or anything. She was just kind of game to go go on a trip and (laughs) check out some cool stuff. And so for her, I was kind of explaining as just a digital co-op like the the acronym is really unfortunate because everyone's like, well, what does it stand for? And then you're like, oh, it's a decentralized <laughs> autonomous organization. I know, it just sounds so droney. Decentralized yeah. autonomous organization. <laughs> yeah. Another one I like is a Facebook group with a wallet or like, yeah. A, yeah. you know, it's or like a subreddit or something like that. It's really just a online community of people who, you know, all agree that like they're interested in this, they're trying to do this. And then, brainstorming different ways to do that. And the reason why it's kind of unique to Web3, I think, is because before, if you were going to try and, you know, start a group and then get any sort of finances involved, there'd be a lot of, like, trust issues, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to have access to that bank account? And, like, what are they doing with the money? And, like, why do they need this? And I think uh, blockchain, like, just obviates that social weirdness where you're just like, well, (laughs) this is what it is. You can see all the transactions. This is what we're doing. I don't need to control this. We can all control it. Um, We can all vote on it. Yeah, yeah, we can all vote on it. It's all kind of out there. Uh, It reduces the shadiness. Like shadiness can still happen on an interpersonal level, which, you know, people try and equivocate that with like failings of the technology where it's like, you know, on either end, there's still people. And so yeah. <laughs> things go wrong. But once it's like, you know, within the purview of the blockchain, you can guarantee that it's going to, you know, transpire a certain way. So, and it's all, okay. and you can see everything. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's how I'd explain it Dow. Like, unfortunately right now, it also usually means a discord server and <laughs> which, I, I get why people hate it, but uh, it does provide just like easy ways to voice conference and organize and stuff. So yeah. I'm looking forward to like the next better platform that we can move to. But because um, it's hard. I mean, in DAOs generally, the aim is to be decentralized, but the reality is right now they have a core team that really needs to kind of set the stage of mm-hmm. what it's trying to achieve and you know the first steps of trying to achieve it or else if you just get everybody who's interested in like dinosaurs into a room or something and it's like nothing's gonna 
really happen. I mean, but if you like have a core team that's like, oh, we're going to crowdfund like the, you know, a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton and like that's what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it, then, you know, that could be a galvanizing like activity or something. It's interesting. DAOs to me seem like uh, in the past, you know, what DAOs have allowed are, you know, blockchain based communities, digital communities um, where everything is transparent. And in, in the past, if you were going to experiment with any sort of society or economy, you would have to change the structure of society, which would cause a lot of bloodshed and violence. Right. And the DAO platforms have allowed a way to be able to test out certain philosophies of, of uh, society um, without all that bloodshed and violence. And if you don't like it, you can just leave the DAO, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it, that's my sort of favorite analogy of blockchains is like nation states where it's like the gas fees are the taxes, your wallet is like your citizenship, and then, you know, your your uh, stake or whatever is like your voting right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, like if in real life, if, if somebody wants to try out some kind of socialism experiment, um, then <laughs> it could really cause a lot of hell for a lot of people who are against yeah. it or, you know, just... Uh, uh, yeah, right. sorry. You can try stuff out like that one week, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the experimentation, and that's. Um, I'm hoping that Republic cannot just be the, you know, the um, visualization and collection layer, but also just as an organization, be part of that experiment. Because I just, you know. I have thoughts about how th how we can do things more efficiently. So mm -hmm. I do. So I have a question about the data token, a little bit about yeah. the tokenomics, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is, so the data token, is this out on the public marketplace or is this right now? Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, so. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not mine or Republic's. It's um, Streamer is the network that launched it. Okay. And they're the ones who handle the... Republic, uh, our app uses Streamer, and that's basically distributes the data to people who want to buy it. And then okay. if and when they buy it, they handle the, like, the stream becomes unencrypted for them, and their payment goes out to everybody who contributed to the, the data stream. And so Streamer handles all that on its own. Is that an ERC-20 token? or? Uh-huh. Okay. And then it, all right. Interesting. On several chains, I think I know Polygon, XDAI, or Gnosis, and Ethereum, but I think it's on other chains as well. Yeah. And so we're actually operating on uh, on XDAI. So when you set up uh, your Republic account, I start a wallet for you, and then you get paid on the XDAI network with the data token. Yeah, I noticed it was really easy to set up a wallet. You just provide an email address, and then it just verifies the email. Then it sets you up with a wallet. Um, mm -hmm. Can somebody go in and get their twenty-four password or twelve password seed phrase, and you know, and eliminate the association with the email? If, you know, um, I can't eliminate it right now, but that's something I need to do. But you can 
you can copy your private key from your settings if you want to take it. Okay. You take your wallet elsewhere. Um, and then, oh, sorry for the dog guys. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, man's here. Um, and then you can, I want to get it in there pretty soon where you can just bring your own wallet. But yeah, I think my, the early users I, I was talking to and approaching were not like web three native. And so it's actually better if it's just like a, a web two sign on for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what flow science was describing with his platform. They were, you know, they're, they're using near protocol because of the whole, um, web three, um, address domains and that would be mm-hmm. a little easier and with the email sign up as well. Um, cause that's, that's a huge problem is, is a lot of people are adverse to crypto, uh, because of the barrier of entry. And so uh, it looks like mm-hmm. you handled that pretty easily as easy as I was able to sign up. Yeah. There's still more work to be done on that, but yeah, I just want the the ideal scenario is like, you know, people download the app, they say what they want collected. They say how they're comfortable being with it being shared and under what terms. And then they just kind of, and then they hook up their bank account. And then in 30 minutes or something, money is like, you know, yeah. just going into their bank account and they don't have to worry about wallets or crypto or anything. That's just like the means to, to an end, to make it all, make it all happen fairly and securely. Yeah. And so now it's just, you know, just propagation distribution to everybody to get everybody on board and participating in the ecosystem mm-hmm. at this point. Right. I mean, with some minor tweaks, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Adoption's a big one, but I think part of that story is also an education story yeah. because, um, I think you and I don't realize how far down the path we are where it's hard to explain to anyone that their data first, what their data is that's being collected or what's available, like to actually see it. You might tell yeah. somebody their location data is being collected. And they're like, ah, I don't care. But then you show them a map of like the last five years of where they went. And then they're like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, feels so good. So there's that aspect. And then, and then, okay. So there, then you get them on board with like, oh, wow, this is all that's being collected, but who would really want to know that? Like, it's not that valuable. And so then there's a whole cycle of education about like, well, you know, these companies, like their trillion dollar coffers are filled with money made off of your data. It's like your individual data maybe is not uh, worth something on its own, but like grab a thousand of your friends and now we're talking, you know, interesting things you. Yeah. yeah. So, and then there's that portion and then you, and then you're like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> like I want to, I want to sell my data. And it's like, okay, well, are you comfortable with it being used in like machine learning models? Like, are you comfortable with this? Are you comfortable with that? And then they're like, then it's educating people on all the ways that their data is and can be used. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of, I thought we were jumping into the marketplace and like getting that price, you know, that we talked about, mm-hmm. but, now, but now I'm realizing like for it really to be universal, we got to go back and just like use in my, in my mind, use software to kind of like make it, make all those things tangible and yeah. and effortless to people. So you can just 
you can come on, you can see, you can get like a visceral idea of everything that you're generating throughout the day, everything that your house is generating, everything that your car is generating, and then give, and then have the tools to like understand what that is, see the value in it, and then share it in profitable ways if you choose. It's kind of like digital a- asset management for your data. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think it lets you have a little more control over the toggles and switches you know, mm-hmm. of, of your own data. And a lot of people don't see the issue with that. They don't understand the whole concept. Um, and it, I know this isn't privacy software and it's not a privacy token. Um, it, you're basically just taking the reins over data that's already being collected on you, correct? Yeah, and I would argue to people who are concerned with privacy that um, it's it's too late. Like, there's no there's no physical way to contain the data that you want to kept, be kept private. Like, everything that can be known about you will be able to be known about you. Like, very shortly. Like, even in East Denver, we were talking about new things where you can listen to conversations through like light bulbs, and you're going to be able to run machine learning algorithms on like the smallest piece of like evidentiary data and then be able to recreate like a whole scene like a you know stalkers can look at the like the reflection of your front door in your eye or something on a instagram and it's just do you really want to try and fight the battle of like keeping it all in which is you know possible i think we have to move on to um you know penalizing the people who abuse it, making sure that we have clear ownership rights, mm-hmm. um, asserting like that, that it originated with you. And to do that, we really need to just start collecting things. Like it's almost, I almost feel like a time urgency to start like collecting everything that people are giving off right now, because yeah. it's, it's going to be hugely valuable. It only gets more and more valuable over time. Yeah, it's such a temptation, and I see this a lot in the blockchain space. Um, you know, from very, I'm a libertarian type of guy, you know, and uh, to it's really a temptation to go down that luddite path and be anti-technology once you see something and you get scared of it and you see nothing but dystopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to be open-minded and fight that temptation and that urge. Um, but, uh, you know, I see a lot of technology being created, privacy technology, to try to fight against exactly what you're talking about. But you're taking more of an approach like it's happening anyway. Why don't we learn to basically get on a surfboard and ride that wave instead of try to push against the water? Yeah. Yeah. Like I keep thinking, imagine if uh, if Napster had like actually just gone the route of um you know licensing right away or just acknowledging that like there was a there was a way to share things and that people just wanted to stream music like (laughs) yeah all the time um and i feel like that's kind of where we're at where the the privacy stuff is just making it harder for like the smaller fish to get your stuff, Mm -hmm. making it easier for the bigger fish to just monopolize it. Yeah. And well, I mean, like back when I was originally talking about the BMI, SESAC and ASCAP music licensing, they were licensing for all of music, you know? And if I had any control of that, I would flip the switch on only the songs that would fall under that umbrella. Not necessarily. Yeah. yeah, And the artists would want that too. They would. Yeah. 
because then they could like actually get paid for it. So, uh huh. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of parallels there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're—I mean, I'm over time. I normally go 40 minutes, but this is a huge topic, and I've, I'm really <laughs> enjoying talking about this stuff with you. You seem like a wealth of knowledge, and every—you know—you're an amazing writer. So I really suggest you go check out his articles. I had had one more question, but unfortunately, this question is going to go really deep down a rabbit hole. He says, thank you guys for the great answers. Uh, DAO is awesome. Um, I have a follow-up question. Is it possible for a DAO to be decentralized similar to Bitcoin? And that is a huge question. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you could say that in one phrase or less. <laughs> I think the one thing I'd say about that is Bitcoin is the most decentralized network. I don't know if, if any any other network is going to catch up to it at this point, just because it's the earliest and most decentralized. Um, so I think it's a spectrum and I mean, the short answer is no, but <laughs> given enough time in the fullness of time, yeah. I guess it's possible. If well, you know, a lot of people yeah. say that DAOs shouldn't be completely decentralized either, that it should maybe be a distributed autonomous organization rather than a decentralized autonomous organization. Because sometimes you just can't get jack squat done with full decentralization. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it has to be little pods of like whatever the ideal number of people is, like 12 or whatever, where like yeah, whatever number of people you're most efficient working in, then... Mm -hmm you should just go off and do your thing under the umbrella of this other thing. And Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I want to ask you, how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn about your project and um, how can they join the DAO and stuff like that? Yeah, totally. Uh, if you're interested in like all the random stuff I'm working on day to day, uh, you can follow me uh, at K Axline. It's just, K, my last name, on Twitter. and But then there's Republic Dow Twitter handle um, for following Republic stuff. And then the, the website, I think, is up on the screen, but it's re-public.io. I think the hyphen may come to bite me in the ass, but I think it's important because it's, um, you know, it's significant, like rethinking. Our, mm. our public status and what the public can be. And it's probably something where we're actually opting into sharing our data uh, in various forms. Yeah, yeah. Hold fast to that. That's a really good way of thinking about that. So, yeah. Thanks a lot, Keith, for jumping on the show. Um, like I said, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. You know, oh, really enjoy yeah, this stuff. <laughs> All yeah. right. And uh, for those of you in the audience, um, if you see it on YouTube later, give it a thumbs up or whatever. Um, you know, those things always help. And uh, yeah, go say hi. All right. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you for making it to the end of this program. If you actually like this content, give it a thumbs up. And if you want to hear more, just hit the subscribe button. I'm available on YouTube, Odyssey, and BitChute, and on all the major podcasting platforms in audio version. Spotify specifically, if you would like to follow and leave a review, that would help a lot. I am also available on Twitter at EurekaJohn1, that's E-U-R-E-K-A, John, J-O-H-N, and the number one. My DMs are always open. Feel free to shoot me a message. If you would like to donate some stablecoin or Ethereum, 
please feel free to send it to eurekajohn.crypto or eurekajohn.eth. This will help with the gas costs for all these protocols that I mess around with. Because that gas adds up and I ain't rich. Yet. Thanks again. Thanks again.